Well, good morning. Great to see everybody. I'm going to just have us pray. Lord, as we uh, open your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and open our hearts. Uh, Lord, you are the author of Scripture and Holy Spirit. You give us insight. You give us understanding and application. Uh, so, Lord, we, we invite you into our midst. We ask you to be glorified through your word. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was 505 years ago, tomorrow, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, or as a lady I was talking to the other day said, didn't he write 35 theses? I go, well, he had 95. 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. These were uh, corrections to the corrupt church of his day. And it, you know, it used to be a tradition that every Protestant church would take the Sunday around uh, October 31st and call it Reformation Sunday to at least remember um, what God did through the Reformation. And um, so, so I want to do that this morning. I, I'm going to call this Reformation Sunday. And um, let me take you back to the time of Martin Luther. He was a monk in uh, a monastery, and he had um, a trembling conscience as he would read the Word of God. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, this, but if you were to ask Luther, what was your view of God before you understood the gospel? He wrote about it. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat unrelentingly upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Now, what place was he beating on Paul? Well, he was studying the book of Romans. And uh, after Paul's greeting at the beginning of Romans, he then starts his presentation of the gospel. And he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So here he found the word gospel and it means good news. And he, he wanted to find the good news but then right after this verse, it says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So um, he was disturbed because 
He knew the gospel was supposed to be good news, but in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And in his mind, to think of a righteous God is to think of a holy, wrathful God. So what good is it for the gospel to highlight the righteousness of God that just condemns me more? So he was troubled when he thought of the righteousness of God. In fact, he hated God. He hated that righteous God. But he, he knew there had to be some good news in this thing called the gospel. So he uh, had a breakthrough. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Did I even read that part? Okay. Uh, for in it, yeah, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. All right. So, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written... He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Now, here's what he understood. And I'm, I brought along uh, some labels here and uh, some scotch tape. And here's, here's Luther. Let's do it this way. In a monastery daily obsessed with his, his sin and his unrighteousness. All right, so here's, here's his sin. And then as he reads about the righteous God, we're going to go over here. And he says, the more I think of the righteousness of God, the worse I feel about my sin. So there's no peace in the gospel until he understood that the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is this. His sin is given to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is a gift given to him. Now the righteousness of God is a wonderful thing because it's a gift. It's Christ's perfect righteousness given to me as a gift. And then Luther writes this when he understood this. Whoops, did I even write it? I didn't write it, but I'm going to read it. All right. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again. And had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally different face of scripture showed itself to me. 
So, the Reformation was a reformation of God's grace. Understanding that, that you don't earn your salvation through sacraments and prayers and good works. It's a gift through faith given to you. It's the righteousness of Christ. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to understand. The Reformation relieved the guilt of Luther because he presupposed something that was true. And that is the reality of the wrath of God. That a righteous, holy God must pour out his wrath upon sinners. Without understanding that, the grace of God makes no sense at all. Right? So, I'm going to suggest that here we are 505 years later, and we need another Reformation. Back then, the wrath of God was presupposed. I think we're living in a time where very few people understand the wrath of God. Without understanding the wrath of God, you can't have a clue about the grace of God. It's just a word. The grace of God. We sing about amazing grace, but it's not so amazing. What's the big deal? So here's what I want to do on this Reformation Sunday. I want to give you five glimpses of wrath. Okay? Take you to five places where we see God's wrath. And the first is in Paul's presentation of the gospel itself. In Romans, we already read this part. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God, which is a gift, right, is revealed. And now, okay, so this is, this is kind of his intro to, I'm going to tell you the gospel. Point number one. Here's the first point. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, unrighteous, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In his basic laying out of the gospel, point number one, the wrath of God is coming. You know, um, you start reading theologians and different theologies and so forth, and People get all tangled up and, and they, they go, well, is God really a wrathful God? You know, there are whole swaths of Christianity that do not believe it, it is dignifying to, to see God as a wrathful God. And I'm not just talking within liberal Christianity, even in conservative uh, evangelical churches there is a question about whether we should view God as wrathful. In fact, we sang the song by the Gettys that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, two hymnals told the Gettys, we will publish your song if you'll just change it a little from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. 
Now, that's true. It's true that the love of God was magnified. But they said, no. The way the love of God is most magnified is by understanding that the wrath of God was satisfied. And, and you go, well, boy, that's a stretch. It's right there in the beginning of the gospel. So the first place we go to see the wrath of God is in Paul's presentation of the gospel. Romans 1.18. Let me take you to another place. Book of Nahum. Um, now, by the way, um, I am not a betting man. But if I had a horse, I'd bet my horse. That if we took all the years, all of you in this room have been going to church. You've never heard a call to worship, a call to let's worship the Lord, read from Nahum chapter 1. Okay? So here it is, uh, Nahum chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So Nahum is talking about Nineveh and Assyria here. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. It's in one verse. Hi, I'm Nahum. I'd like to tell you about my God. And he's avenging and he's wrathful. But then look at this, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. You know what that tells me? His wrath is not like human road rage. You know, somebody cuts you off and you... No. So how do you combine this idea that he's wrathful and he takes vengeance, yet he's slow to anger? That tells me that his wrath is a patient, well-measured, properly distributed wrath. He's not a hothead just flying off. This is a patient wrath. Right? The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So there's good news in the middle of this. When you flee to him rather than away from him, he's good. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You know, there would be a lot of people in churches this morning who would be offended just at reading Nahum because it doesn't fit their picture of their God. Right? What's the good news? When, when we talk about the gospel and, and the gospel being the good news, what is good? In the gospel, I understand the good news is that he has taken his own wrath upon himself in our place. That's the good news 
of the gospel. Some people, the good news of the gospel is just God is a wrathless, loving God, nothing to worry about. Okay. Now, let me take you to a third place. I'm going to take you to the desert. Moses has led the Israelites uh, through, the, through the, the Red Sea, and in God's wrath, he has collapsed the Red Sea upon Pharaoh and his armies. And God has provided water and manna and quail. Right? And as they're going through the, uh, the, the desert, a guy named Korah gathers around him two other guys, Dathan, Dathan and a Abra Rim, Ram, Abra Ram, and 250 men. And they say, We would like to lodge a complaint, Moses. Why do you get to be in charge? We'd like to be in charge. And remember, Mo, when, when God said, Moses, you go, you go deliver my people, Moses said, Here am I, send Aaron. Right? Here, don't, I don't want to do this. Isn't there anybody else? Please don't pick me. And God said, no, you're the guy. And yes, Aaron, can, can, he's going to be the priest. But Moses wasn't in it for the glory. He, he didn't uh, work his way to leadership. God chose him. And now these guys are saying, you're out, we're in. We had a little election here, right? And um, we win. You're out. So Moses falls on his face. He doesn't want this conflict. And here's what happens. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. So when God says, <clears throat> you might want to get away from so-and-so, you might want to get away. Okay. And here's what, what happens. So Moses talks to God, and he tells the congregation, so all of Israel's gathered. Right? He says, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. Okay, so if they die, they live a nice long life, they die in a hospital bed, then I, I shouldn't be the leader. Okay? But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah in all his goods, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. As Keith Green sings, uh, the, the ground opened up and had some of them for lunch. Right? So then... You know, imagine, let's say there's somebody on your block who's kind of trouble in the neighborhood. He's got a political sign in his yard that says, vote for Satan. 
you know, and you decide to have a little block gathering, and while you're gathered, the ground opens, his house goes down into it, and it covers back up. That'd be unusual, wouldn't it? All right. But now, so this takes care of the ringleaders. What about those 250 guys? They wanted to be priests. And they had, so, so Moses said, go get your censers, which are, I don't know, they hold incense. And uh, here's what happens to these guys. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. House goes under, fire consumes 250 men. Now, did the congregation then fear God, the wrath of God? No, you know what they did? They grumbled. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah, I made, a, I made the ground open up and the fire come from heaven. And yeah, that was me. Right? So now God is mad at the grumbling congregation. So he sends a plague. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away. <laughs> Remember, first get away from these guys, now get away from the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from the altar, off the altar, and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for, here's the word, wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So a plague was spreading through the congregation and Aaron takes his censer and puts it between those who have died and those who are still alive. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire I think I already read that, didn't I? Yeah. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 beside those who died in the affair of Korah. Now, you say, do you believe that really happened? Absolutely. Absolutely. I absolutely believe every word of it. Right? Well, how can you believe in a God like that? Well, rather than me putting God in the dock and questioning him, the proper response to this should be, Lord, what, what, what have I done? Have I grumbled? Have I presumed things that I shouldn't presume? So we see just one example of the wrath of God, not just upon his enemies, but upon his own chosen people. Let me take you to a fourth place called hell. Okay? The ultimate place where the wrath of God is poured out. Now, 
Um, I found, oh, there's a lot of stuff on hell out there. And uh, even within theological circles, there are many who say, you know, there's no hell. God can't send people to hell. And I found this, it was actually on a Roman Catholic site. And um, so, it, so it's within the realm of, of at least church. And this is, this, this is what one person writes. He says, what kind of a monster would inflict that hell on anyone? How could such cruelty and sadism be consistent with the God of love? I don't buy it for a minute. I don't care if scripture mentions hell or Jesus talked about it, if saints had visions of it, or if it's a time-honored Catholic teaching. It simply can't be justified on any level. We have no proof of its existence. All arguments for hell, however reasonable they once sounded, are debunked by one single truth. God is love. End of the story. So, you know, between Rome and Protestants, the question is, what's the final authority? Sola Scriptura? Or is it Scriptura and Ecclesia? Is it church and scripture? You know where we are today? Sola Emotiona. It just doesn't seem right to me. Therefore, it can't be. Whoever thought of this before, I don't know, but it's been debunked. Why? Because God is love, and I can't imagine this. Well, a lot could be said about hell. And uh, one of the, and, and by the way, there's a lot of, a lot of effort to put out hell. Um, there's kind of a new movement of um, what you'd call universalism, the idea that everybody's going to be saved. Um, there is even somebody as well-known as John Stott held to annihilationism, where you will go to hell, but you'll burn up. And then there's the whole Rob Bell phenomenon of you get a second chance in hell. And uh, one of the arguments that people raise is this. They say, well, most of the teaching about hell comes from Jesus' parables. And parables, by nature, are highly symbolic. Therefore, we really can't be sure how literally we are to take the parables. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Okay. So... Um, I think you have to be careful with that. Absolutely true. Parables use analogous language. But just because an analogy is used, a metaphor or a simile is used, does that mean there's not a basic truth that we can get? So, you know, the parable of the sheep and the goats um, we call it the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's not really a parable. There, there is an analogy in the teaching, but it's really not a parable. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus is going to return sit on a throne, angels will be, be with him. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now, there is the analogy. He's going to separate people, oh, like, let's see, like a uh, shepherd separates sheep and goats. In another parable, he says, it's like a fisherman who catches fish, and he separates the good fish from the bad fish. It's just uh, the, the only parabolic part of this teaching is the separation is kind of like, and he comes up with an analogy of a farmer. You, know, it, it, you, you could have used anything. You know, he's going to separate the bears from the packers or yeah, what, whatever. It, that's, that's the only parabolic part. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now we're back to talking to people. Now, um, he says to them, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. They're going to say, well, when, when did we see you hungry? And he says, when, when you did this to the least of my brethren, that's when you took care of me. And then he says to uh, the, the ones who are rejected, depart from me, because you didn't feed me or take care of me. When did we reject you? When you did this to the least of my brethren. But then at the very end, here's a statement of judgment. Not of sheep and goats, but of real people. And these, those who are rejected, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And let me just point out that the same word for eternal punishment is the same word to modify eternal life. And if you're going to say this lasts forever, then you have to say this lasts forever. And I think you also have to say it's not just eternal separation. It's eternal punishment. It's a place where God's wrath is poured out for eternity. And again, rather than me sitting in judgment of God saying, well, it's, that's just not fair. I think what I have to do is say, you're holy, righteous, and you're the judge of all the world. You, you do what's right. Therefore, if this is true, my sin must be horrendous. Right? One last place we want to go, and that is to the cross. Okay? And this will not take long. And on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, um, the, the term that John uses for that is propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. Big theological word that simply means this. He is the one who satisfies the wrath of God. It used to be you'd take an animal and put it on the altar. And even in pagan practices, they would sacrifice an animal to propitiate the wrath of their God. 
And John uses that language of Jesus. Now, let me, let me say this. Some people have used this strange concept that if this is true, then God is a cosmic child abuser. You ever heard that? Well, that assumes that God is grabbing Jesus against his will and nailing him to the cross. Jesus said about his life, no one takes it from me. This is the plan from the, from the beginning. To be the propitiation. You could say God himself is his own propitiation for his own wrath. So then, where does the grace of God come in? Where does the wrath of God come in? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Spurgeon said this, if sinners will be damned, at, let, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exhortations, and let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. So, so as we close, you know, God works in different people's lives at different times, and sometimes we're just kind of on autopilot, going to church and doing the Christian thing. And, and, and maybe you have never truly, really opened your heart and said, Jesus, I need you. I trust you. Otherwise, the wrath of God is what I deserve. But I believe in you and I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Would you pray with me? And then the worship team can come up. Holy Spirit, open eyes, open hearts. Show us that your wrath, it's not either your wrath or grace. It's because of wrath grace. Thank you, Jesus, that on the cross as you died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be like Luther, trembling. But we can be born again and filled with praise because we stand where the fire has already been. Amen. If, uh, if, if you are saying, boy, I, I, I want that, I want Jesus, I still have some questions, love to talk to you. Um, my new thing is I'm going to grab a cup of coffee and go sit down at the table. And you just come on up, like Lucy at the booth, five cents, it's a nickel. Um, and love to chat with you, okay? So let's, let's uh, close with one more song.